Okay, friends. The story begins. We are on the bottom of page 49. We're continuing the Amida, the blessing where we ask God to return in mercy to Jerusalem, your city. God, come back home. Come back to Jerusalem. This is the next request in the series of blessing amidst the Amida. And you'll notice most of these requests are uh, themed around the future redemption of the Messianic era. Here's something interesting. As we mentioned earlier, these blessings were not authored by Ezra and his court as much as they were compiled by Ezra and his court. There were existent blessings throughout history authored by various sages, and they compiled them into the Amida. They picked these 19 blessings and put them into the Amida. So what was the context of this blessing? King David conquers Jerusalem. He purchases the land. He lays the foundation. They're ready to build. And now King Solomon is going to actually build his son. King David wasn't allowed to build the base of Mikdash, the temple. But King Solomon is going to build the base of Mikdash. And this is a monumentous moment in history. Because this is what the world has been waiting for since creation. Literally since day one of creation, God says, I'm creating this world for a purpose. You know what the first thing God did when he created? He said, let there be light. I'm creating this world so I can illuminate. I can illuminate it. I can manifest in it. And with Adam sinning, Adam and Eve sinning from eating from the tree of knowledge, that made things much worse. And throughout history, various sins made things worse. And then you have Abraham. Abraham comes and says, I'm going to bring God back to this world. I'm going to bring God home. I'm going to make God relevant. And he shares that. He sacrifices his life and he shares that with everybody. Isaac does it a step further. And various sages throughout history a step further. Finally, we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. God is manifesting in this world through the Torah. We're going to be celebrating that Surah Shavuot. Right? God is finally here. How long did that last? <laughs> Not too long, right? First of all, the inspiration itself literally had a, um, a fatal effect. God had to revive us. It was too inspiring. That's what the Talmud says. Every time God spoke, <laughs> they essentially died. They had to be revived. They finally said, Moses, can you hear it from God and convey it to us? Because we can't handle this. Um, and th that type of inspiration out of body experiences never lasts. That's why they sinned with the golden calf several weeks later. So God says, you know what? You want to experience me in this world, which is what the whole purpose is? What we've been doing till now hasn't been working. I have an idea. The tabernacle, the mishkan, the temple that they assembled in the desert and carried with them wherever they go. Right? The, war, the, the purpose of existence is finally uh, manifesting God in this world is finally coming to fruition. But not exactly, because this is very temporary. Right? As the Jews go, so does the temple. There's no permanent structure of God's presence in this world yet. Finally, Joshua conquers the land of Israel 
and leads the Jewish people in. This is already post-Bible, post the Torah. Moses dies already. Welcomes the Jewish people to Israel and they conquer the land. And it's only several hundred years later, close to 400 years later, that King David conquers Jerusalem and Solomon finally builds this temple. This is a special moment. Finally, God is going to have a permanent structure in this world. This is what the world has been waiting for, for since creation for thousands of years. This is what the Jewish people have been waiting for since Abraham. Since God told Abraham, your children are going to get Israel. And this is what the Jews have been waiting for since Mount Sinai and what the Israelites have been waiting for since they've entered Israel. It's been a long journey and we're finally there, right? We finally have a permanent structure where we can house God's presence, God's divine presence. And as soon as that temple was built out of gratitude to God, you know what King Solomon said? He recited this blessing. That's what the Midrash tells us. He recited the end of it where it says, Baruch Ato Hashem, blessed you, Lord, Bone Yerushalayim, who builds Jerusalem. In the English, they say rebuilds Jerusalem, right? That's contextual. Who builds, in our context, it's rebuild. Um, who builds Jerusalem. Now, here's the interesting thing. You hear me say this all the time, and I'm going to say it again. Translations are not that accurate. Because what does the Hebrew, what does the English say? Return in mercy to Jerusalem, your city, and dwell therein as you have promised. Speedily establish therein the throne of David, your servant. Rebuild it soon in our days, an everlasting edifice. Blessed are you, Lord, who rebuilds Jerusalem. Okay. Return to Jerusalem, return in mercy. What does the Hebrew say? Take a look at the Hebrew. The first word, in Jerusalem, your city, with mercy, tashub, return. What does the vav at the beginning of a word mean as a prefix in Hebrew mean? Yeah. And. This paragraph starts with and. And we turn in mercy to Jerusalem, your city. What and? Do any of the other blessings start with And. Only one of there's only one other. There's only one other blessing that starts with and. It's Not interesting you... that the uh, the English doesn't even translate the and at the beginning of that either. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It it grammatically it doesn't make sense. It it's it's not how you would translate it, right? If you're trying to make sense, but and and that's why translations are a little bit. There's always inaccuracy to translations because there is a significance to that and a very big significance, especially since with the exception of one. Most of the other blessings don't start with and. What does that represent? And means it's a continuation of the previous blessing. The previous blessing was praising God for righteous people. We spoke about that last week. Why are righteous people important? Righteous people give us clarity. Righteous people see see life differently than we do. Right? Righteous people see righteousness in other people because that's what they are. That's how you know if somebody's a tzaddik. How do they look at other people? Right? That's a real tzaddik. We need righteous people to lift ourselves up. We need righteous people to empower us to connect better to our souls. Now, obviously, we all have a direct line to God. 
But it's the righteous people that enable us to see that, that enable us to experience that. Or I should say empower us to experience that. We need those righteous people. And God return in mercy to Jerusalem through the righteous people empowering us to connect to our souls, to connect to God. It's through that that we can welcome God back to Jerusalem. We can welcome God back to the temple. We can welcome God back into this permanent structure. It's through the righteous people that enable us to experience our full potential as Jewish people. That we can have the strength to, in confidence, welcome God home, which is what every single one of us, every single one were created. Somebody's copying me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is what every single one of us were created to do. Our discussion is based on the premise that God created us. Right? God is not a figment of our imagination that we created for comfort, for convenience. If that were the case, I don't think there would be 613 commandments. Um, <laughs> but God created us because he needs us. He created the world with a purpose. He created a world where he seems absent so we can make him more present. The truth is he started off quite present until Adam and Eve messed up with the fruit of knowledge. And then the Jews later, uh, the tree of knowledge, the Jews later messed up with the golden calf. Right? We kept. So finally God said, you know what? You're going to have to welcome me back. And it's the righteous people that empower us to look at ourselves and say, you got this. You are strong. You are powerful. The story that comes to mind is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was a college student. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was a prolific speaker and teacher and rabbi and thinker. I, I don't know if there's anything Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said that was not profound. Very influential. And he had no intention of going into the rabbinate. He was a college student in Oxford University. He was taking a trip to New York. It was a research project, and he was very, visiting various dignitaries, famous people, and interviewing them. And interviewing rabbis as well, community leaders. Familiar with the story? He goes to the Rebbe, and he was expecting to get his questions answered, as all the other community leaders did. And to his shock, the Rebbe starts interviewing him. <laughs> Literally turns the tables. How many other Jews are there in Oxford University? Right? And he starts asking all these various questions. And he says to him, what are you doing to help the Jewish community in Oxford? And in his mind, the answer was, I'm not a rabbi. I don't do that. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm not doing anything. And I wasn't planning on doing anything. I'm here to get a degree. I'm here to learn. I'm here to get educated. But he wasn't going to say that. That's rude, right? So he said, well, the situation where I find myself in, I don't really have the ability to... The Rebbe cuts him off mid-sentence. It says, we don't find ourselves in situations. We put ourselves in situations. 
you have the opportunity to be influential and you have got to put yourself in that situation. That was a turning point in his life where he eventually decided to become a rabbi and ultimately become the chief rabbi of England, of Britain, of the UK, and have the incredible influence that he did. But what did the Rebbe do? He shined a little light on him and enabled him to see his direct connection, his ability to welcome God back to Jerusalem, back to his permanent structure in his own way. That's what righteous people do. We all studied the Tanya, right? In our Tanya discussion. And the Alter Rebbe writes in the introduction to the Tanya that the role of this book is I've been meeting too many people. I can't handle it anymore. I'm putting it in a book and it's replacing the meetings. What did the, Re what did the Rebbe do in those meetings? He enabled people to see their best selves. And instead you have a book that will enable you to experience your best self, right? So we pray for the righteous people and then the next blessing and Jerusalem, right? We turn to Jerusalem, God. There's a correlation. Now, what is Jerusalem? All of these blessings we've been reciting and learning about had a historical representation, historical meaning, a practical meaning, and also a deep psychological, personal soul meaning. Soul logical, perhaps. Soulcology. There we go. The study of soulcology, right? There was a deep personal meaning in all of these. What is Jerusalem? Yerushalayim. What does Yerushalayim mean? Yerushalayim is a compound word. It's a compound of two words. Yira, reverence. Shalem, complete. Complete reverence. Yerushalayim in its full glory, Jerusalem in its full glory, represents the Jew who is completely and genuinely reverent of God. When God resided, when God's presence manifested in the Beit HaMikdash, in the temple, the reverence of the Jewish people for God was real, was complete, was genuine. Which means they found what their divine soul wanted to be more meaningful than what their animal soul wanted. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine like it's like a, a, a can you imagine having a struggle to get to work because I'm enjoying davening so much? Only John has that, right? <laughs> you're you're so connected to your divine soul. I can't get to how am I going to eat breakfast? I'm in the middle of studying Torah. Right? For for usually that's a that's a normal usually the normal it's normal to want to eat and you gotta really push we gotta push ourselves to spiritually engage to spiritually connect. But they were so deeply um, connected with their divine soul, God was so real to them. Their reverence for God was shalem. Yirah shalem was so complete and whole and genuine. Their divine soul was like their reality. That's what a tzaddik is, right? The divine soul is your reality. You happen to have this animal soul and you happen to have human needs and you have to take care of them. But that's not where our drive is. 
That's not where our passion is. That's not where our interest is. We have deeper interests. Contrast that to when the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, was destroyed. The divine soul didn't leave, right? Just like the divine presence never left the temple. The land is still sacred, right? Still a holy place. It's not as revealed. The reverence is still there. It's not as revealed. Deep, true, genuine reverence is an indication that we don't just believe that God exists. We believe that God is relevant. We know God on a very deep and personal level. When the students, the Talmud says that when the students of um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai were gathered around him, he was on his deathbed, they were gathered around him, and they said, Rabbi, give us a blessing, give us parting words. And he says, I bless you that your reverence for God should be like your reverence for people. What? That's it? Isn't that an insult to God? He says, no. That's pretty deep. That's pretty meaningful. If you revere God, if God is so real to you, as real as uh, human beings are, we're intimidated by God as much as we would be intimidated by people, or we're sensitive to God as much as we are sensitive to people. That's huge. That means our reverence is real. Our reverence is genuine. Our connection and, and um, awareness of the soul isn't peripheral. peripheral. Say that six times fast. Peripheral. It isn't on the sidelines. It's right there. And that's what it was like when God was manifest in the temple. And we're asking in this prayer, God, return to Jerusalem. Return. Dwell there within like you promised. Speedily establish therein the throne of David, your servant, and rebuild it soon in our days. But this time, God, as an everlasting edifice. The first temple lasted 410 years. The second temple was built 70 years later. It lasted 420 years. The third temple, God willing, is going to be everlasting. Our And not just the structure, but what the structure represents. Manifestation of God. And what that represents on a soul or psychological level. A genuine, deep awareness and reverence of God that's not going to be fluctuant it's going to be stable if our reverence is real and genuine we're going to have stability okay before we move on to the next blessing any questions comments thoughts reflections No? All good. Okay. Second bless, uh, Next blessing on the top of page 50. Again, following this theme of redemption. We want the temple. We want the Beit HaMikdash. We want to manifest God in our lives. And we say, after praying for Jerusalem, top of page 50, speedily cause... How do we pronounce this word? I've never even... <laughs> Skyen? Skyen. What is a Skyen? That's a great question. Anybody know what a scion is? I thought it's scion. Okay, I'm going to go to the Hebrew, if that's okay. Yeah. 
Maybe um, don't know the English. I, I've I, I I give me a little vulnerable here. I've never even noticed that word in this. <laughs> I've never even looked at the English here. Okay, let's look at the Hebrew. Et tzemach David avdecha meherat hatzmiach. Let the growth of King David, your servant, quickly sprout forth. Like a sky is the 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 growing the sproutingness. We okay, want so to... I, I went to I went to Webster and here's the answer. It's pronounced Siam, so the C is silent. Siam, okay. and it's a descendant. A descendant, okay, that which works. makes sense. Descendant, descendant of, of King David, right? Mashiach, whom we're referring to, is from the direct lineage of King David. Mashiach is a son of 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 King David, right? Increase his power by your salvation. For we hope for your salvation all day. Blessed are you, Lord, who causes the power of salvation to flourish. We're waiting for salvation. The impact of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, of God manifesting in this world, the Messianic era, comes with the perk, if you will, of salvation. And we say, the second line in the Hebrew, middle of the line, Ki lishuatcha, for your salvation. Ki vinu, we hope for, kol hayom, every day. Commentaries point out, it doesn't say kol yom, every day. Kol hayom, the entire day. Not, It's not a checklist. Okay, I waited for the Mashiach, it's something we're genuinely waiting for the entire day. Not just every day, but the entire day. The Talmud says that when somebody passes away, what happens when somebody passes away? Where do they go? There's a court case. Right? They meet their creator and their Judged, I guess, is a harsh word. We don't like to be judged, but they're assessed. And they're interrogated. The Talmud says it's a list of questions that they're asked. Interestingly enough, the first question they're asked is, did you conduct business honestly? That's important in Judaism. Second question that they're asked, did you have set times for Torah study? The next question they're asked, did you engage in procreation? Did you populate my world? That's what God asks. And the next question that they're asked, did you await salvation? Did you await redemption? Right, God asks, did you conduct business honestly? Right, the Torah says you can't lie and cheat in business. You can't steal. Did you study Torah? Foundational to Judaism. Did you procreate? Foundational, the very first commandment in the Torah, the Bible, to Jews and non-Jews alike. Did you conduct, uh, did you wait for this redemption? <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> Who cares? And the reason is because this is foundational. Essentially, God wants to know, how did you live your life? Was it centered around the goal for which why I created the world? It's so easy to forget what that goal is. 
But God creates this world so he can manifest, so, so we can manifest him in it. And it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to forget. And essentially, God is asking, did you remember why I created you? Did you live life with that intention? Because if you did, then you're constantly praying, doing mitzvahs, giving charity, uplifting people, studying Torah. You're constantly doing everything you got to do to bring the Messianic era. Maimonides writes that it's an obligation to await the Mashiach's coming every day. And that it could be heresy not to wait the Mashiach's coming. Because this is why God created the world. Right? There's, there's a famous song, Animamim. Right? I believe the Emuna Shlema with complete faith. Beviat HaMashiach and the coming of Mashiach, right? You know that song? Didn't I hear that one? Yeah, actually, uh, Rabbi Rowley and I sang that together. Oh, really? Yeah, at an event. Gosh, which event was it? Uh, actually, well, it may have been the Torah dedication so oh, many years ago. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. So the words of that song are based on Maimonides' one of his 13 principles of faith, right, of Jewish faith, which is believing in the Messiah, Mashiach's coming. But where did the tune come from? Who wrote that tune? It's not that old of song. It's about 70 years old. You had a Hasid from the community of Majits. There was a group of Hasidim from Majits somewhere in Poland, or maybe Ukraine, I don't know. Excuse my uh, geography. John, you're going to have to figure this one out. Uh, <laughs> where's Majits? There was the Majits or Hasidim. The Majits or Hasidim. Good, were... but not that good. Uh, okay. The Majits or Hasidim were very into music, were very into song. Um, I guess many Hasidim are, but especially the Majits or Hasidim. They have a lot of, they have a lot of Nigunim, they have a lot of in songs. And they had like an appointed Malhamin again, they had an appointed like almost like a cantor who would compose music, inspirational music. And unfortunately, they're being rounded up in cattle cars, taken to concentration in death camps. And the, I, I don't know his name, but he starts singing, the the, the famous composer of Majid starts singing, uh, and on the this is where he composed the song where he shared the song I believe with complete faith in the coming of Mashiach that this world can and will be a divine place where is he singing this with all his heart and soul out of all places in a cattle car Can you imagine the entire cattle car singing that together? Can you imagine them having that faith, even in the darkest of times, that this world can be a good place? That is crazy, man. That is wild. There were two younger people whom he turned to and he said, I'm too old to escape this, but if you can escape this and bring this back to the Majitzer Rebbe, you're going to... Get rewarded. You'll go into the next world. 
have my share in the world to come. And one of them managed to escape and actually brought the song to the Majitzer Rebbe. And they sang this on Yom Kippur. It's a powerful song. It's a powerful nigun. But what's more powerful is that they awaited for the Mashiach's coming even when it was difficult. And the question is for us, can we await Mashiach's coming even when it's not that difficult? Okay, I'm not here to negate people's challenges. We all have our challenges. We all have our our uh, you know that monkey wrench that God seems to throw at us. Can we still await Mashiach's coming? The Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, he wrote a famous book called The Chafetz Chaim, an exposition exploring the laws of Lashon Hara. Fa fascinating. He wrote many other books, many books on Halacha. Lived a little over 100 years ago. I think he died in the 30s. And in, in Poland, Radin. He lived in Radin. The Chafetz Chaim was ready for Mashiach. He literally had a suitcase packed and he left it by his door packed. People said, Why well, do you have a suitcase packed? Because Mashiach is going to come. I'm going to start packing and wait. <laughs> We've been waiting for thousands of years. What, I'm going to like start, oh, I didn't expect you. <laughs> no, I have been expecting you. I've been waiting for you. Interestingly, the Chafetz Chaim was a Kohen. Cohen's are going to serve in the temple, in the Beit HaMikdash. So he would make sure to be well-versed in the laws of all the various sacrifices. He built a ramp, an altar to practice going up and down properly. And, to, and he, was, he was quite ready. He was ready for Mashiach. The, we, we know this about the Rebbe and his Hasidim. They're crazy about Mashiach. They really are. I was reading in one of the Rebbe's talks, he says, somebody was once saying that a Chabad Chassid is somebody who's crazy enough to believe that Mashiach can come any moment. He says, yes, they're right. That's what we are, right? But the Rebbe took it a step further. Starting like in the, the 90s, the Rebbe in his talks started talking about not just waiting for Mashiach, but living in Mashiach mode. That's crazy. To live in Mashiach mode. You know what that means? You're not just going to have a suitcase ready for your Mashiach attire. You're going to put on that Mashiach attire. I don't mean just in the literal or physical sense, which the Rebbe did too. At that point, the Rebbe used to wear a wool coat, you know, a wool frock every week. And on Shabbos, he would wear a silk one. The Rebbe started wearing silk daily as if he was kind of ready for this sabbatical time, for this messianic era. And he introduced this idea of, let's start living Mashiach mode now. Let's start living on that. Mashiach is this, the messianic era is where God is going to be manifested in this world. It's an elevated way of living. Let's start living that way now. And what that means, practically, is if my Yetzirah wasn't challenging me because God was a normal part of my life, what would I do differently? 
Let's do it. Let's do it. That's the Mashiach mode. If Mashiach was here, how dedicated would I be to God? Let's do it. If Mashiach was here, I would be focused less on trying to suppress the negativity within me and more on embracing the positivity within me. Because the negativity is not relevant anymore. It's been transformed. Let's do it. Let's transform. I met with a guy. I don't know if I should be sharing this, but I already started. met with a guy last week who was going through a difficult time. His wife was unfortunately diagnosed with an illness. Thank God she's going to be good. What do you do with that information? You know what I mean? I, I, I can't begin to imagine how overwhelmed and dark of a place that must, that must be. They're not they're 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 relatively young people. I said to him, you know, he was in a very dark place. And I'm in an interesting place because on the one hand, I want to be empathetic. On the other hand, I want to be encouraging, and those are opposites. You want to give people hope. And empathy and hope are, are are these confusing opposites. This is what's going on in my head. Do I empathize with your pain or do I give you hope, which may come off as insensitive and you, like, you think there's hope? You, do, do you see what I'm, you see where I'm getting at here? It's a little bit of a confusing thing. I'm trying to get, if I'm going to give you too much hope and you know, you don't want toxic positivity either. Nobody wants that. But that's what I'm here for. I told him, if you got a call tomorrow that everything is fine. Everything is good. Totally healthy. And you have zero concern, nothing to worry about. What would you do? He said, I would get on the ground and I would thank God and I would celebrate. I said, you got to live Mashiach mode. Mashiach were to come, right? all the illness goes away, what would you do? I said, do it now. So what are you talking about? Do it now. You're so confident. Live in that mode of thinking. Don't just wait for Mashiach. Don't just wait for redemption. Live in redemption mode. The guy gets on the ground and he says, thank you, God. For health, for taking care of my family. He was instilled with a whole new attitude of looking at, at this. You know, in Judaism, we, we, we've spoke about this in our other classes, about the, the power of bitachon, of trust in God. It's that same idea. It's living in that elevated way of thinking, that messianic way of thinking. He texts me. That thank you so much. And I can't wait to make a, a celebratory meal, which is traditional when when the when we celebrate these big things. And thank God things are going in the right direction. And things are God willing, things are going to be in the right direction. Living in the messianic era, living with Mashiach, which is what we're saying over here, we 
hope for salvation all day, every day. And even more so, we, we, we start living in that frame of mind. Life is very different. Our world is very different. Because our challenges, we, we face our challenges differently. Our challenges are behind us. We're ahead of them. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.